Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 95. I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and thanks for listening. Uh, today, we've got a great one for you. We're going to be looking critically at the DSM, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, we all know needs to be looked at critically. And we're going to do that with our wonderful guest today, Sarah Fay. Before we get there, just a quick announcement. If you have not discovered the Radical Therapist YouTube channel, please go check it out. Lots of videos, and I have some new ones coming. I'm going to uh, be launching one on illness narratives, working with illness narratives. So if you... Uh, work in settings where people might be experiencing chronic pain or deep illness, as uh, Arthur Frank calls it, uh, you might be really interested uh, in this video. So go check out the Radical Therapist YouTube channel, subscribe, like, comment, or even read the comments. It's really quite fascinating. Go go to my patriarchy video and go read those comments. That's uh, uh, that'll that'll take up some of your time. So uh, anyway, uh, let's get right to our guest, Sarah Fay. Sarah Fay is an author and activist. Her memoir, upcoming memoir, Pathological, A True Story of Six, My, uh, Six Misdiagnoses, will be released by HarperCollins in, on March 15th, 2022. This is an investigation into the invalidity and unreliability of mental health diagnoses. Her writing appears in many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, The New Republic, Long Reads, The Michigan Quarterly Review, Rumpus, McSweeney's, The Believer, and The Paris Review, where she has served as an advisory editor. Her essays have been chosen as, not as a notable mention in Best American Essays, and she's been nominated for Pushcart Prizes. She's a recipient of the Hopwood Award for Literature, as well as grants and fellowships from Yadu, the Mellon Foundation, and the McDowell Colony, among others. She is currently faculty in the English Department at DePaul University and Northwestern U University. She's the founder of Pathological, the movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to making people aware of the unreliability and invalidity of DSM diagnoses and the dangers of identifying with an unproven mental illness. For more about Sarah, you can find her at sarahfay.org. I'm going to have lots of links for you to check out in the show notes. But without further ado, let's meet Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Chris, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really, this is such a treat. It's great to have you here. And I guess we'll just get right into it. You have a new book coming, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. And this is a journalistic memoir of your experience being diagnosed with six different mental illnesses starting at the age of 12, quite early. And I'm wondering if you could share with us and our audience a bit about this experience and how it inspired you to embark on this deep investigation into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, otherwise known as the DSM, uh, our psychiatry's Bible. Yes, absolutely. I was diagnosed with six different mental illnesses from the time I was 12, as you said. Anorexia, anxiety, depression, ADHD, I probably don't need to define the acronyms for your audience, but just in case, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and finally bipolar disorder. And so it started at the age of 12 and went through my 40s. And it was 30 years pretty much of me really believing that I was sick and broken and crazy sometimes. 
And I believed what a lot of people believe, which is that these were very medically sound, scientifically valid, reliable diagnoses. I was very, I never thought to question them. And part of the reason is that when we talk about diagnoses and the DSM and psychiatry and therapy, we tend to think of a patient or a client across from a psychiatrist getting a diagnosis. But the majority of diagnoses are given in primary, by primary care physicians. And most of my diagnoses were given by primary care physicians in hospitals, you know, across from a man wearing a white lab coat and with a stethoscope over his neck. And so I wouldn't, why would I ever think they were anything but medical and scientifically valid and reliable? And so I did, I just never thought to question them. Um, finally, as it would seem, I hit a breaking point. And at that point I was told, or I believed I was bipolar. I didn't just think I had it, it was me. And I was suicidal. And I went to see a new psychiatrist. It was winter in Chicago, it was brittly cold. And I just remember going to his office and feeling as brittle inside as it was cold out. And I sat across from him and we had the quick 35 minute diagnostic interview. And I waited for him to tell me what my diagnosis was now, or if he agreed with the diagnosis I walked in with. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And something just shifted in me. And I suddenly started thinking, what do I have? What, what are these diagnoses that I've been given? You know, where are they from? Who discovered them? And I'm a journalist and a writer. And so I just started to research and I dove in, in this pretty fragile state of mind, but the research became a lifeline for me. And I discovered the DSM. I had never even heard of the DSM. I've been living in basically the mental health industrial complex, if we want to call it that. And I still, I didn't even know what this book was. And I learned that DSM diagnoses come from the DSM and that they're not biological, not proven to be chronic, not genetic, and not the result of a chemical imbalance, which I completely believed. Mm. And that they are basically categories developed by committees of mental health professionals, primarily psychiatrists, based on their opinions and theories. And that's it. And it was such a shock to me. And I, as I talk to people about my book and all of this information is in the book, I can see the shock on their faces. Um, even my publicist was disbelieving and, and loves the book, but was just, she didn't know half of what I reveal either. Um, so the inspiration came though, when I read the statistic that 46% of Americans will be diagnosed with a, a, a disorder from the DSM. Mm. And that just staggered me. And, I, and then I read that 20% of children and adolescents will receive one. And I started picturing a stadium full of adults and thinking half of them are going to be told they have a mental disorder mm. and see, picturing a, a playground full of children and one, counting five and knowing one of them will be told they're mentally ill. And they may not know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I wrote Pathological to try to give everyone the information I wish I had had mm. and the knowledge that I wish I'd had. And it was, it's been an incredible experience and something that really has changed my life, being able to 
turn my experience around and really use it as a way to help others. Yeah, and maybe I have a question about your personal experience of that, right? You know, um, one of the things that we talk about, and at least in the circles I run in, is about the danger of how these diagnoses can totalize what we call totalize identity, right? And I'm and wondering about, did that happen to you? And then did this, you kind of moving into doing your own research kind of free you from some of those, you know, uh, those totalized identities? That's so wonderful. You just did it. You must be a very good therapist, but you absolutely just hit on it. And I never thought of that before, but I absolutely, I didn't, I became each diagnosis I received. Mm. I was, when I was told I had ADHD, I was the most distractible person that ever lived. Mm. And I found all the evidence. Once I was told it, to the point that I remember um, calling my mother and saying, no, actually I have a new diagnosis and it's ADHD. And she said, well, you always were hyper as a child, as if that kind of sealed the deal. <laughs> and so, but there were other, you know, examples of me finding evidence and being able to just identify completely to the point that when I was finally diagnosed with bipolar, I just lived it and essentially believed that I would eventually go on disability and would die young that was the sort of prognosis that I was given and then was also floating out there on the internet, which never helps to look at the internet. <laughs> no. no, but, and then maybe say a little bit more about how you got out from under that, the, those totalized identities. Yeah. I think you're right. Part of it was finding out that they aren't scientifically valid and that even that they aren't, uh, they aren't reliable. That was just such a shock. It, it woke me up and that, now what I do, I want to distinguish between two things. One is that I believe mental illness is very, very real. Sure. So I am not anti-psychiatry. I am not a Thomas I'm not. And I really believe I have or had one. I don't think we know enough about them to know if they're chronic. And I don't believe they are. I believe I am not even just recovered, but that it is you know, something in the past. Yet I do still take medication. And I don't know if I am continuing to take medication because my body is dependent on it or because it really is helping. But I am 100% pro-medication. Whatever sure. we can do you know, is, is wonderful. But getting to the place where I no longer identified with a DSM diagnosis and the psychiatrist who said, I don't know, I still see. And he's, he's very wonderful, very respectful, very transparent. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about all of this. And he... Uh, has given me two different diagnoses since then. And I told him, I just don't want to know. I just don't even, I don't even know what the diagnosis is anymore. Yeah. And so when I experience life and I have crippling anxiety, sometimes I have deep, deep depressions. Um, my medication helps a lot and I'm very grateful to it. But now I don't see it as part of my disability or part of my illness or more evidence for how I'm broken or sick or crazy and instead, I just just experience it. I just say, okay, let's let's go. We're gonna have anxiety, and sometimes it's it's really terrible. So at the end of my book, I really try to restate that that it's not as if this isn't a mental health memoir where you know the protagonist goes in and discovers that you know she really didn't have any of these diagnoses after all. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh 
I was wondering if you could, you did mention about how diagnoses are unreliable, but not biologically sound or medically sound. And I'm wondering if you could say more about the invalidity and the unreliability of the DSM. Yeah. And that was something, you know, I, when I say those things, I'm very careful. I'm not a mental health professional and that's not something I could ever determine. But Thomas Insel, who a former head of the NIMH, the National Institute for Mental Health, had said that DSM diagnoses have 0% validity. Mm. And Stephen Hyman, another former director of the NIMH, has called the DSM an absolute scientific nightmare. And those are quotes. So the lack of validity was something I learned from my research. And essentially what they're saying is that no DSM diagnosis, with the exception of dementia and some rare chromosomal disorders, can be measured or detected objectively. So they exist, there's no blood test, there's no x-ray, there's no scan that we can do, not only to prove that a DSM diagnosis exists, but also to show that someone definitively has one or another. And in this, I really like to distinguish between DSM diagnoses, that's what I was trying to get at, and versus mental illness. Mm -hmm. Because I see what I'm talking about in my book are DSM diagnoses, um, and, and mental illness is very real. Yeah. Um, but basically, DSM diagnoses can't be proven, and they're totally subjective based on self-reported symptoms and a clinician's opinion. And the most striking thing I read was uh, Robert Spitzer, who was the chair of the DSM-3 task force. He's an iconic figure, both bad and good. But he said, when asked about why depression, you needed five of nine symptoms to qualify for the diagnosis, he said, well, we just went around the table and everybody weighed in and four seemed, seemed like too few and six seemed like too many. Hmm. And we are still living by that five of nine number right now. Hmm. So that's invalidity. And then in terms of reliability, it depends on the diagnosis. So there is a difference among them or differences among them. And reliability is essentially that two clinicians can see the same patient or client at the same time, um, you know, witness the same symptoms and won't come to the same diagnosis. And I like to, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I don't really think the clinicians are to blame. I feel like that would lead someone to think that the, it's the clinician's fault, but without validity, it's very hard to have reliability. And just that, you know, basically that clinicians are doing the best that they can given the criteria and the DSM, the book that they're working with or the diagnoses, because some aren't necessarily referencing the DSM every day. Yeah. Um, your work also points out that pharmaceutical companies have strong influence on the DSM and have invented diagnoses like panic disorder, for example, or and I, uh, to sell drugs, I imagine. I'm wondering if you could say more about that. The I think some would, some would argue that they don't influence the DSM diagnoses. They don't invent them. And that may be true, but 70% of the authors of the DSM-5 had ties to big pharma. So it's hard to say whether or not there's influence there. But regardless, what they do do is promote diagnoses and they proselytize diagnoses. So a great example is generalized anxiety disorder. And in 2001, GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical company, 
got the patent to market Paxil. So uh, the best example of that is generalized anxiety disorder. And in 2001, GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical company, received the patent for Paxil to treat that diagnosis. Well, only 1% of patients or clients received the diagnosis at the time. They're not going to make very much money off of 1% of the people out there. And so what they did is what's called a disease awareness campaign. And it's, from what I understand, common enough. And what they did was they created fake patient advocacy groups. They contributed to patient advocacy groups. They hired doctors essentially to promote the diagnosis. So they didn't, and they ran ads promoting generalized anxiety disorder, not Paxil. And that's, that blew my mind. I, I couldn't believe that that is, so suddenly when everyone's talking about a diagnosis, that certainly is a factor that pharma is playing a role in how common we think a diagnosis is. And a similar thing happened with social anxiety disorder. Again, it was GlaxoSmithKline, um, and this was in 1991, and they created a disease awareness campaign. But I was sitting with one of my students I teach at a university, and she was telling me about how many of her friends have, definitively, social anxiety disorder because of the pandemic. And I just, pause. I just, I didn't say anything. It's not my role as a professor, but it was really interesting to hear her. I don't know if she was diagnosed or not technically, but she was sort of diagnosing all of her friends or they had all been diagnosed. And you're hearing a lot about social anxiety disorder all of a sudden. Um, but yeah. So what are your, this leads me to a question about what are your thoughts about, you know, I've seen something kind of disturbing about, all the diagnosing that goes on in social media, for example, and how, um, you know, everybody's a narcissist today or, you know, all these kinds of things that get thrown around. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how that's propagated um, through these powerful platforms of social media, right? Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of the mythology around those diagnoses also gets propagated. And what people are doing is relying on misinformation. And that's where I really hope that my book will help and really reach people and give them the information that they need not to be quite so glib about these diagnoses, not quite so ready to accept them. And in some cases, they're absolutely appropriate. And in many cases, they're not. This, that leads me to my next question. You encourage people to ask three questions when they or someone they love is diagnosed with some sort of disorder. And I'm wondering if you could share these questions and their function. The three questions that I wish I'd asked and that I would encourage people to ask are, the first one is when someone receives a diagnosis or their loved one receives a diagnosis, to ask first, is my diagnosis valid and or reliable? Second question, has my diagnosis been proven to be chronic? Third question, what does the information that they've gotten from those two first questions mean for me and my treatment? And I came up with those questions. They're not in the book. They're actually something I came up with after I'd finished writing it. I realized that I really didn't give people actionable steps, something that they could do as a result of the information that I give them and as a result of reading my story. And so I started a public awareness campaign 
with the three questions to encourage people to empower themselves when they are receiving a diagnosis or know someone who is. And it's Pathological the Movement and www.pathological.us. And people can go there and I put a lot of the research that I did and where my sources are up there. My sources are in the book as well, but um, my sources are up there and they can get more information, both of some of the issues I raise in the book and then also about the three questions. But you asked about their function and of course I would love it if people actually asked that question, but we're very intimidated mm -hmm. by doctors mm -hmm. and therapists. And so mm -hmm. I don't actually expect people to ask those questions necessarily. But if we could get the three questions out there on social media, in the media, it would get people asking them of themselves. And I think that would be hugely beneficial and empower people. And also it may trickle into making clinicians feel they need to be more transparent about the diagnoses that they're giving. And hopefully that might lead to true consent. I mean, if we can go that far and say that, but right now people are being given diagnoses and not told the whole truth about them. And what are your thoughts about our mental health systems that often use a diagnosis as a gatekeeper, for example, meaning, meaning that many people cannot access care unless they have a diagnosis? It's really important that we have diagnoses. And I'm in no way, some people want to throw the DSM out the window, sure. and I absolutely don't. <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a good idea. As I said, I'm on medication, and I absolutely need that medication, and I would hate for me to be deprived of it or anyone else to be deprived. So diagnosis is a real thing. What worries me is when we use that thinking not to enact reform uh, you know, on the DSM. And that seems to be what happens. So we stay with these 541 diagnoses and essentially we're over-diagnosing people. And that's when we're making people into patients unnecessarily. There was a statistic that 60% of people who received major depressive disorder didn't actually qualify for the diagnosis. And 60 to 70% of people with bipolar didn't qualify. So the other aspect of this is we're also not getting care to those who really need it. Hmm. And by overdiagnosing people often referred to as the worried well, hmm. and I don't love that term because I think suffering is real and valid, but people who may not really need a diagnosis, we're giving diagnoses and instead we're leaving people really seriously with serious mental illnesses to fend for themselves and not have resources. I live two miles from the largest mental health facility in the country, and it's the Cook County Jail. Mm. Something is wrong with our mental health system, mm. and right. we're not really doing as much as we can. Alan Francis, who's the, who was the um, DSM-4 task force chair, he has this really great observation where he calls it the cruel paradox of psychiatry where the people who need the most care aren't getting it, and those who don't are getting the most care often to their detriment. Mm. And I love that. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I, I like his work and how he, you know, when I taught a class actually on the DSM and I was hired because I could critique it at the same time, 
Uh, I used some of his work, his videos to his show to talk about after the fact that some of the critique that he had at, at being intimately involved in uh, the DSM. But anyway, as a journalist, you also hope that the media will have be more responsible in, in, in reporting on mental health. And this is an area I find pretty problematic out there in the world. And you know, um, as a journalist, what do you think can be done or what are your suggestions to media in general? Well, there's an incredible opportunity coming up. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know it until last week, but the American Psychiatric Association just announced that the newest edition of the DSM will be released in March. No, I did not know that. Yep. Just found no that. one I know, <laughs> even people in the know didn't know that. So there, the DSM 5TR, so text revision, will be released in March. And so this is an incredible opportunity to spread awareness. And I really hope the media jumps on this and journalists really do responsible reporting on the DSM in general. The DSM-5 in 2013, received, as you know, received a lot of attention and there was a lot of controversy, but it felt like people attacking people, the authors of some editions attacking the authors of the new edition. Mm -hmm. And that, that, could have gone somewhere, but it doesn't seem like it's really gone anywhere. And I'm hoping what we can do now this time around is really, I don't want to say attack, but we can attack the DSM, focus on the book and what's really going on there. And what are the myths about the chemical imbalance and biology and genetics? What are the myths and what's the truth about the DSM? Hmm. So it's, it's amazing to me that this is coming out and that it's not amazing that few people know because the American Psychiatric Association will not respond to my emails. I think they're really trying to keep this quiet as long as they can. There's been no press releases or <laughs> apparently. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, finally, you've, you've, you've mentioned this about the need for reform and I'm wondering what, what do you think that would look like? What are your ideas about reforming the DSM? I, I wish I had the answers. I don't. Mm -hmm. There have been really wonderful suggestions or possibilities. I think the most interesting or compelling uh, is the idea of pairing back the diagnoses, the number of diagnoses. It seems it's, it really does border on the absurd that we have 541 diagnoses or possibilities of receiving a diagnosis. And I just think how could someone not get a diagnosis if they walk into a psych, you know, psychiatrist's office or physician's office and reveal their darkest secrets and their deepest desires and their oddest behaviors? And I mean, you can absolutely find one. Um, but I don't have the answer. And so that's really why I wrote Pathological. I think the answer is now, or the onus is on us. And so the DSM-5-TR is coming out what I do know about it is that very little has changed. And that one diagnosis has been added, but other than that and two to be considered, that saddens me more than if they'd changed a lot, which is what they did with the DSM-5. And so, because that means they had nine years to rectify the problems in the previous editions and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so it's not going to come from the inside. It's not going to change. Won't come from the top. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us. And I think asking questions and knowing the truth and spreading awareness is the answer at this point that, you know, DSM reform is really 
we can't affect that in some ways, but hopefully by us asking questions and having power again as mm-hmm. patients and clients, mm-hmm. it will have that effect. Do you know anything about because I I don't know a lot, but I know there are alternatives being offered, like the power threat meaning framework. And I wonder if you yes. have any ideas about some of those alternatives that are starting to kind of be presented. I wonder, I think I've read about them and I feel like they're wonderful in theory. And I wonder, but I do wonder how we would ever make that transition. Mm-hmm. The NIMH is really following their own RDOC now and and just really looking at their own manual in order to try to prove not that DSM diagnoses are biological, but that mental illnesses. So they're going outside of the DSM diagnosis frame to try to achieve their goals and whether or not they will, I don't know, but that's a research manual and not something for clinical use. Yeah. Well, time will tell. We'll see what happens. Uh, Last question for you. Um, What I always like to ask all my guests, um, uh, what books, films, ideas, thinkers are capturing your attention these days? What are you thinking about? I'm thinking solely about the DSM-5 DR <laughs> at this point. Soon to be, yeah, yeah. Researching everything I can on it. And what's interesting to me is that the head of the chair of the steering committee of the DSM-5 TR is Paul Applebaum. And he's about as upright a psychiatrist as you could find. <laughs> he's just so ethical. That's his area of expertise. So I'm interested in how they're going to talk about this and, and publicize it or not publicize it. Um, so that's really where my thinking has been. But I love Alan Horowitz's new book. I don't know if you've read it, but mm-hmm. it's uh, DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible. It's out from Johns Hopkins Press. Mm-hmm. And he's an academic, but one thing he's done so well is to write this really slim history of the DSM that's very accessible to lay readers. Mm. So it's, it's a wonderful book. And it, yeah. Yeah, um, let's talk about your book. Uh, is there a pre-order? Op- I know it doesn't come out till March <laughs> next year, right? Um, yes, March 15th. Can we point, a, point our, re- our listeners to a pre-order um, link or something? And I will have it in the show notes, but where, where do we find it? On Amazon, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. Okay. And IndieBound, your local bookseller, you can request it from your library. But please do. The pre-order is so important because it sends a message to publishers and the media and even politicians that this topic is important. Okay. So please do if you yeah. can have the option. And I will link it in the show notes, everybody. So do go and pre-order the book. And Sarah, I want to thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. And I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me and just the opportunity. I know so many of your listeners are clinicians. This is a wonderful opportunity to be able to start the conversation about DSM diagnoses and, and where to take it from here. All right, that's our show, and please go help Sarah pre-order the book, Pathological, tell a friend about it, give it as a gift, that kind of thing, Um, and I'm sure you will not be disappointed. Um, We all need to look at the DSM and all of our practices, honestly, with some critical reflection, Uh, and Sarah's going to help us do that, so... 
okay. So as always, you know, you can find The Radical Therapist on all the social media. Come find me on Instagram at The Radical Therapist uh, or at Dr. Chris Hoff. Um, and of course the YouTube channel, go find us on the YouTube channel and, uh, you know, send me an email if you'd like at the radical therapist at gmail.com. I have more episodes coming as always. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and be part of the radical therapist community and, uh, just, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Much appreciated.